You're listening to a sermon from our pastor, Brian Payne. We would love to have you worship God with us this Sunday at 1045 in the morning and at six o'clock in the evening as we make, nurture, and equip disciples of Jesus Christ in Auburn and throughout the world. Well, good morning. If you turn your Bible to John 13, we're looking at verses 18 to 30. This morning, thank you, Adam and praise team, choir, orchestra for leading us in worship, preparing us for worship, the preaching of God's word. Let's pray and ask the Lord to continue to bless our time. Father, we come this morning. We come dependently upon you, but we come righteous in your sight because of the righteousness of Jesus. We come forgiven because of his cross, his resurrection from the grave. Um, but we come this morning dependently upon the Holy Spirit. Uh, we pray that your word this morning by the Spirit would, would enlighten our eyes to your glory. Uh, we pray that it would rejoice our hearts. Our hearts need rejoicing this morning. Many hearts here today are heavy laden. We pray that, Lord, your word and spirit would revive our souls and make wise the simple. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the late 1970s, there was this ancient document that was stolen from an Egyptian tomb and then it was sold to this antiquities dealer who then sold it to another dealer and then to another dealer. Eventually, scholars learned that this ancient document was the long-lost gospel of Judas. Now, the church first learned about the gospel of Judas, which is known as a Gnostic gospel, in the writings of the great church father Irenaeus. Irenaeus... Uh, incidentally, had been discipled by Polycarp, the great martyr, who, and we learned this from Irenaeus' own writings and Tertullian's writings, Polycarp had been discipled by the apostle John. And so Irenaeus was just one generation from the apostle John having been discipled by the one that John discipled. But he wrote against this Gnostic gospel in his important work against heresies. Very important work in church history. What he said in that work is that the gospel of Judas did not belong in the church because it was in uh, contradiction and conflict with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, because of the National Geographic Society, they, they translated this document finally in 2006. It's now accessible in English. But here's what this Gospel of Judas tells us. It was Judas who was actually the most intimate of the disciples with Jesus. He was the first of the 12. And Jesus gave Judas secret knowledge that he didn't tell any of the other disciples. Secret information. And, and so, um, in this document... Judas hands Jesus over so that Jesus' soul can be liberated from his body so that he 
Jesus could become a pure spirit. Now, that's seen in the key passage in that Gnostic gospel where Jesus tells Judas, you will exceed all of them. He's talking about the other disciples. You you shall exceed all of them for you will sacrifice the man that clothes me. You see that? So the man is what clothes the real Jesus. In other words, it's necessary for someone to free him finally from his human body, which in the Gnostic worldview is true salvation. And he prefers a friend do it, his closest of friends, rather than anyone else. Now, this is not surprising given the fact that this is Gnosticism 101. The Gnostics promised secret knowledge, spiritual knowledge, but only for those followers who had been initiated in the rites of their religion. The Gnostics also denigrated the human body, but they certainly esteemed the soul, believing that the soul, the spirit, is pure. It's not affected by sin. Only the body uh, is inherently sinful. Of course, this is in direct opposition to Christianity, which presents the gospel of Jesus Christ as a fact of history that even the most simple, if they intently look into the claims of the gospel, can understand what those claims are. And so, as well, the Christianity honors the body. It honors the body of every image bearer. Our bodies matter. That's why what we do in the body matters. But it also teaches that our souls are not pure, but they are sinful, inherently corrupt, which in turn corrupts the body and will eventually bring forth death. But because of the resurrection, because of the power of the resurrection, And this is our hope. God will raise up every believer and redeem both soul and body, uniting them for all eternity in the presence of the triune God. But you won't read that in the Gospel of Judas. Why? Because in the Gospel of Judas, there's no cross. In the Gospel of Judas, there is no resurrection. Instead... That gospel ends with Judas handing Jesus over and we're not told what happens next. This means, of course, that the gospel of Judas is no gospel at all. And yet every Easter, you'll hear the skeptics talking about how the church has suppressed gospels like the gospel of Judas. And and you'll hear others who say, well, Judas was misrepresented. He was misunderstood. Actually, Judas was the hero of the story you'll often hear. Of course, those are lies from Satan himself. The very Satan who entered Judas the night in which he betrayed uh, betrayed Jesus. Uh, That's what it says in the real gospel of John. John chapter 13 course, in our context, Jesus has been teaching his disciples about the real gospel using 
uh, the symbol of foot cleaning. He, he makes it clear that the, clean, the cleaning of their feet is what he is going to accomplish through his cross. In fact, he will bring about a, a wholesale cleaning, a cleansing by his blood. But he also has taught these disciples because this is the way they would be made clean and all believers would be made clean. This becomes the way of the gospel. The Christian life is going low, serving those who do not deserve it. That's what Jesus has taught the disciples. And so then he closes out his lesson on foot cleaning with these important words in verse 17 to set up our passage today. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. In other words, what is a Christian? Is someone who knows, who believes, and actually responds to what he knows and what he believes. Tragically, this was not true of one of the 12. And that brings us to our passage, the prophecy of the betrayal. Look with me in verse 18. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. Now, he had chosen all 12 to be his disciples, and what he's saying here is he knows every single one of them. He knows their character. He knows what they believe. But the Scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. It's remarkable language there. I am telling you this now before it takes place that when it does take place, you may believe literally that I am. It's unfortunate the ESV puts the he there. They do it for readability, but you miss. So that you will know that I am. That's a very important theme throughout the gospel of John. Now, as far back as chapter 6, we saw this in verse 70 of chapter 6. Jesus said remarkably, did I not choose you, the 12? And yet one of you is a devil. And so in, in the mysterious providence and economy of God, Jesus chose all 12, and he knew when he chose Judas to be one of his 12 that he was a devil. It says he spoke of Judas, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. And Jesus recognized that Judas was actually going to be a fulfillment of a prophecy from all the way back in the Psalter, Psalm 41.9, that says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Now, in the historical context, this likely refers to the traitor of David, Ahithophel, uh, who was his main counselor, and one of his closest friends. Outside of Jonathan, Ahithophel would have been his closest friend, and yet he betrayed David to follow Absalom because he wanted to be on the right side of history. And he thought Absalom was, was eventually going to overcome his, his father David. So he betrayed his closest friend, his king. And Jesus is saying two things here, basically. First... That historical occurrence was actually a prophecy. 
And this teaches us a little bit about the Old Testament. The Old Testament is preparing us for the Christ. And so there's all kinds of types and shadows and figures that's preparing us for the Messiah in some way. And so though that happened in time and space, there was a man named Ahithophel. This was not some kind of myth. Ahithophel betrayed King David, and Jesus is saying that act foreshadowed a greater betrayal of a greater king. The second thing he's saying here is there's an Ahithophel in the camp. Try to say Ahithophel a thousand times. I think when the Holy Spirit inspired that psalm, he was laughing about future preachers who would try to pronounce that. But there's an Ahithophel in the camp, and he says, don't forget the context here. I mean, this is important. This traitor is going to lift his heel. That's the language of a horse lifting up his heel and kicking his owner. This traitor is going to lift his heel against the Savior. And Jesus has just washed that heel. It's remarkable irony here. And and this should have been enough for the one who's going to betray Jesus to be melted, to mourn his sin and, and repent of his sin. And don't forget as well that all the while, Jesus is our substitute. We tend to focus on the cross alone, as crucial as the cross is. We know the cross is crucial. On the cross, Jesus propitiated the wrath of God for those who would trust in him. The cross is vital to our salvation. But his life is also vital to our salvation. Jesus Christ is fulfilling all righteousness for those of us who are unrighteous. And so he is loving his enemy, as John 13, 1 says, to the end because we don't. When someone betrays us, and none of us will experience the betrayal that Jesus himself experienced, but all of us in this fallen world will be betrayed. Uh, It's likely you've already been betrayed. It's likely you have been blindsided by someone you thought loved you. And it's very likely you're going to be blindsided again. But here's how we typically respond. We respond as vigilantes, in our hearts at least. We respond with venom. We respond with bitterness. We respond with malice. We respond with malice. We need a perfect righteousness to cover that. And so all the while here, Jesus is loving the one who would betray him to death because we don't. That's a very important point here. He's fulfilling all righteousness. With that said, this betrayal is, comes to no surprise to Jesus. He knows he's going to be betrayed. He has known this since he chose Judas to be his disciples to fulfill the scriptures. Jesus had a high view of the scriptures. Jesus believed the Old Testament, as we know it, was inerrant and infallible and must be fulfilled. Although he's about to be betrayed, Jesus is saying, I am not a victim. He knew the 11 may have the tendency to think, boy, Judas got one on our Savior. He really 
surprised. He really outwitted Jesus. That would have been their tendency. And so he forewarns them. And I think part of the forewarning is, is a final plea to Judas to repent. But he forewarns them so that when it happens, their faith won't fail. You know, if you've been on a plane very much, you know that oftentimes a pilot will come over the loudspeaker and, and warn of turbulence that you're about to go through. Now, there's a couple of reasons he does that. For one, he wants you to, to buckle your seatbelt. And it's always dumbfounded me why people don't already have their seatbelts buckled. But the second reason is so that when you go through that turbulence, you won't think the plane's out of control. You won't think the pilot has lost control. That's why Jesus is telling them this. In this case, the pilot is I am. Again, look with me in verse 19. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, literally you may believe that I am. He is identifying himself here as he has throughout the gospel of John with the I am of Exodus 3. When Moses asked the God of the burning bush, what is your name? I am that I am. Already we've seen in John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am. And we're going to see throughout this gospel, we've already seen several times that Jesus says, I am with a predicate. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door, the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. We're going to see in 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. And he wants them to know when this happens that I am. And I am is always in control. Always. In spite of what you may see. In spite of what you may feel. In fact, that claim in verse 19 is filled out in verse 20 in a verse that really doesn't seem to fit there. But Jesus has his reasons. Look with me in verse 20. He says, truly, truly. Now again, uh, when he says, truly, truly, take note. 25 times in the Gospel of John, we read this language, amen, amen, translated, truly, truly, unless you're money, verily, verily. <laughs> truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. The disciples, once their faith is restored, and Jesus in chapter 16 is going to predict their, their faith is going to fail for a time. They're going to scatter. But once their faith is restored, and it will be restored, at least 11 of them, after the resurrection, he is going to send them on a mission as his sent ones in the world. And he is saying, those who receive you, and your message, receive me. And those who receive me, receive the Father. Again, this identification, he is distinct from the Father, but he's equal in essence and power and glory with the Father. He eternally uh, is generated by the Father. 
He is eternally begotten by the Father. There's a distinction in persons, but they are equal in essence and glory. But here's what's remarkable. Hours from the cross, hours from suffering like no man has ever or will ever suffer again, and he's talking about the Great Commission. Isn't that remarkable? Right there in the middle of this passage. Again, just before the cross, he talks about the Great Commission. And right after the resurrection, he talks about the Great Commission. Why? Because his cross benefits no one unless they've heard the message. So right here in the middle of that, we see this. But that brings us to the pain of the betrayal. We've seen the prophecy of the betrayal. But there's, and I told, I told Heather yesterday, one of the real challenges of preaching this passage is that as a weak preacher, it's impossible in and of myself to bring out the pathos that would have been in that room, the emotions that would have been in that room. I am completely dependent on the Holy Spirit to do that. But there, this would have been palatable, the pain of the betrayal. Look with me in verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, again, one of 25 times, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now, this is the third time we have seen that Jesus is troubled in his spirit. The first time was when Lazarus died. The second time was when, in John 12, he's contemplating the implications of the cross. All three times are related to death. Death is an enemy, an enemy invader. But the New Testament shows Jesus with a full range of emotions. Every emotion a human can have, Jesus had. Here's the difference between our emotions and his. Oftentimes, our emotions are driven by our sin nature. He didn't have a sin nature. His emotions were perfect expressions of how a human should respond to every situation. And in this situation, it was right to be troubled. It was right to be troubled. And the reason he could respond this way is because he had a human nature, a full, complete, total human nature, including a human soul. He also had a human psychology including a human mind and a human will and his trouble. Think about this. This is the trouble of a human. He, had, he didn't have to have this. It was part of the price he paid for his humiliation, for us and our salvation. Jesus' announcement also caused trouble in a different way uh, in a different sort with the disciples. Look with me in verse 22. The disciples looked at one another uncertain of whom he spoke. You say, where's the trouble there? Well, in Matthew's account, it tells us in Matthew 26, 22, they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? Is it I, now, this question is a question we should always ask when there's trouble in a church or in a marriage 
or in a family or a workplace? Is it I, Lord? We must never grow tired of asking that question. This is one of the few times the disciples responded rightly to Jesus. I have Johann Sebastian Bach's biography in my study, and, and, and in that book, it speaks about one of his pieces called St. Matthew's Passion. And in, now he was a believer, he, he would sign every one of his pieces with solo deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. But in that particular piece, St. Matthew's Passion, Bach has the, the congregation sing after the words, is it I, Lord? They sing, I'm the one. I should repent. Bingo. Exactly. This is the right response of every believer when confronted with some kind of issue or trial because our default setting is to focus, focus on other people's sins, is to go on a witch hunt. And their response was, is it I? Very important response. But here we've seen the pain of the betrayal. And now we learn who the person of the betrayal is. Keep this in mind. You're not shocked by it because Judas's name has gone down in infamy. It would have been utterly shocking to the disciples. Judas was their treasurer. He kept the money. In other words, there was no one among the 12 that was more trusted than Judas. Look with me in verse 23. One of his disciples whom Jesus loved, now this is John's way of staying out of the way. He doesn't want his name promoted, but this is John, the one who writes this gospel, and this is the first of four times that you read uh, this language. One whom Jesus loved was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So he's right next to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him. Peter doesn't have as good a seat, which goes against the claims that he's the first pope, all right? So he, he motioned to this man that we, we know is John to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. I don't know what the sign language would have been, but Peter was very expressive, as you know. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, and he probably likely whispered, Lord, who is it? And it appears that just as Jesus had his 12, he had his three, Peter, James, and John, and then he had his one. It appears that John was the most intimate of the disciples with Jesus. And Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Now, it is telling that not one of the disciples suspected Judas, not a single one. And that is sobering. And here's why it's sobering. It reveals how two-faced 
and convincing a religious hypocrite can be. It, and it would seem that John, once he had learned who this betrayer was, would have announced it to the other disciples. And maybe that's why Jesus didn't, didn't share it with the other disciples, but he trusted John to keep it to himself. There's no evidence that he told Peter because Peter would have probably, as he would just a few hours later, cut off Malchus's ear. In this case, it would have been Judas. And so he trusted John with the information. And maybe John didn't respond because he recognized that his Savior was, was on a plan, a mission that was in fulfillment of the Scripture and that Judas was a part of this plan. Maybe that's why he didn't do anything to prevent it. But it was Judas, as we're going to see. And that brings us to the final point of this passage. We've seen uh, the prophecy of the betrayal. Uh, we've seen the, the pain of the betrayal. We've seen the person of the betrayal. Now he brings us to the power behind the betrayal. Verse 27, then after he had taken the morsel. Now this is important. Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. Now, what did the receiving of the morsel symbolize? Well, we know that this was the last Passover meal. Jesus transformed that Passover meal into the first Lord's Supper. And that breaking of the bread represented his body broken for sinners. You, you think that the giving of this bread here would have absolutely broken Judas. But it didn't. Because he had been hardened to the revelation of Christ for three years. He had not responded to it for three years. And a person who continues to, to receive the revelation of God in Jesus Christ and continues to resist it eventually comes to the place they are hardened to it. Now I want you to notice this language of enter. Satan entered into him. Now, that very word is used throughout Matthew, Mark, and Luke to refer to demon possession, where demons would enter these various people. But here it's not demons. It's the devil himself. It's the devil himself who has entered Judas. And it wasn't the first time. In chapter Luke chapter 22, verse 3, before this takes place, it says that he had, the devil had entered Judas as he is having conversations with the religious leaders about how to arrest Jesus. So clearly the devil can enter a person more than once. Uh, we know this from Luke eleven twenty four that says that demons can leave a person and then re-enter a person. But the remarkable thing here is that the devil has entered Judas at least twice, maybe more than that, but two times in the, in the, in the Gospels. 
The devil has entered Judas twice, possessed him twice, and no one knows it. No one knows it. That's horrifying language. Judas is possessed by the devil, and his head doesn't spin around. We tend to think because of the movies, that's what happens. And it it may happen in certain cultures, but not here. He continued to look like a disciple, at least to the other disciples, not to Jesus. But he was of another kingdom. He had another king, kingdom of darkness. You know, the the New Testament reveals to us another kingdom. Matthew 12, 26, Mark 3, 24, Luke 11, verses 17 and 18 speak about this other kingdom, a kingdom of evil spirits, a kingdom that is the antithesis of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. And at the head of this kingdom is a personal being created, but a personal being named Satan, but he has various names. Let me just give you a few of these. And the reason he has these various names is because no one name can encapsulate his evil. And so these names are given to us to sober us. We should never fear the devil. We fear God, but we should be sobered by the reality of the devil. He is Satan. He's devil. He's the enemy. He's the accuser. He's the evil one. He's the prince of demons. He's the prince of the power of the air. He's the angel of light. He's the ruler of this world. He's the God of this world. He's the great dragon. He's the ancient serpent. And he's the deceiver of this world. And subordinate to him are numerous demons, evil spirits, unclean spirits, and spiritual hosts of wickedness. Rulers and authorities, all of whom are his messengers. And they're real. Always and everywhere, they are God's adversaries. Let me repeat that. Always and everywhere, everywhere. Not a single one of them is omnipresent, but there's such a whole host of them, they're everywhere. They are the disturbers of the kingdom of God. They are the opponents of Jesus Christ and they are deceivers of his image bearers. That's what they are. And because the demonic forces live in sin as their natural habitat, in other words, James says, resist the devil and he will flee He does not inhabit those who are resisting him by faith. But the demons inhabit sin as their natural habitat, which means Judas was not a victim. Because of his unrepentant sin, he had opened himself up to demon and devil possession. And keep in mind his privileges. He had seen things no human had ever seen. He saw a man who had been dead four days walk out of that tomb. He'd seen remarkable things. A blind man born 
At birth, blind at birth, made eyes to see. He'd seen Jesus take these fishes and loaves and, and feed 5,000 men, never, never mind the women and the children. He had heard things no human had ever heard. He had heard the Lord Jesus Christ, the Sermon on the Mount. He had heard the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus preached everywhere. He had seen perfect love in the flesh for three years. He, had, he has seen the greatest man who ever walked the earth in the flesh. But the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. And possessed by the devil, hardened to Christ, he had fooled the other 11. It's remarkable. He had fooled the other 11. Verse 28. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. Verse 30, ominous words. So after receiving the morsel of bread, the bread that had been broken to reflect, to symbolize the body of Christ that would be broken for our sin. They should have broke his heart as a result. It didn't. He immediately went out, and it was night. And throughout John, John 3, John 9, John 11, we see that night represents, yes, the time of the day, but it's symbolic of Darkness appearing to be in control and the powers of darkness appearing to be in control. And they were. They were. Evil has won until Sunday morning. Until Sunday morning. When darkness is turned on its head, the light of day floods that tomb as Jesus walks out of it. Let me close with just a, a few lessons from Judas and then we're going to partake of the supper. And there's so many lessons. This isn't comprehensive. One of the astounding things that should sober us all and it should sober especially those who are in full-time gospel ministry. All of you are in ministry if you're a Christian. But vocational ministry, Judas had been used mightily by Jesus as one of his disciples. Luke 9, listen to this. He called the 12 together, gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the, the kingdom of God and to heal. That was the 12. That included Judas which tells us that active and effective ministry is not a guarantee of spiritual life or spiritual health. Second, and this is an encouragement to you parents who raised your children in the Lord, but maybe some of them are in rebellion right now. 
All right? This is an encouragement to you. If this text can be an encouragement. Judas teaches us that not even the best example, not even the ultimate environment for producing faith cannot in of itself change the human heart. I mean, Judas was discipled by Jesus. Not a single one of us compared to that as parents. Colin Smith, the author of his aptly titled book, Heaven So Near So Far, The Story of Judas Iscariot. He asserts that Judas's story contains an important lesson for parents and, and for spiritual leaders who, who grieve over lost loved ones like their children or perhaps those they've invested in. And they worry, where did we go wrong? If you are a parent with a, a wayward child, I promise you, you've asked that question. What more could we have done? You've asked that question. Did we fail in our teaching? You've asked that question. Did we fail in our example? Should we have immersed them in a different environment? Well, let me just tell you, you can't answer any of those questions in a perfect way. Jesus could. Where did you go wrong? I don't know, but you went wrong in some ways. Even the best parents. What more could you have done? Well, there's only one of whom it could be said did enough. It was Jesus, and Judas didn't respond to that. Did we fail in our teaching? Yes. In some way, you did. Just as I fell as a preacher in the pulpit. Did we fail in our example? Yes. You weren't a perfect example to your children. Jesus was a perfect example to Judas. Should we have immersed them in a different environment? There's probably places you shouldn't have your children at times. But at the end of the day, Judas was in the perfect environment under the perfect teacher. And at the end of the day, he was no victim. He was no victim. He was a culprit. And so what we do now, let that burden drive you to the face of God. Let that burden drive you to the one who came to save sinners. Third, the extent to which we can harden ourselves and open ourselves up to the demonic by resisting the light is one of the most horrifying facts of human nature. Judas didn't have a unique sin nature. He had the same sin nature that you and I have. In John 12, John tells us that Judas had been stealing from the money bag. I mean, it, 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 that probably confounds you, but it, I, I had to confront a man one time in my ministry who had been stealing. He was one of the ushers, and he stole money out of the offering plate. So it happens. All right, And he had done that. And then, uh, again, when he sat down at the Lord's table and received the bread that was broken, symbolizing what Jesus would do, it says that Satan entered him again. Here's a very important point. Satan begins 
with the sin that is already in us. He works with what's already there. He does not create ex nihilo. Only God does that. He works with what's already there. In this particular case, Judas's greed. In your case, it may not be greed. It may be lust. It may be a bitter spirit. It may be unchecked anger. It may be some form of idolatry. But we open ourselves up. Of course, let me clarify this. If you're a believer, you can never be possessed by the devil because you have been marked in Christ with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit. But you can be oppressed by the devil. And that's why Paul would write to the Christians in Ephesus. And here's what he says to the saints in Ephesus, those who are in Christ, those who have been saved by the blood of Christ. He says in Ephesians 4.27, give no opportunity to the devil. And so you can open yourself up to giving the devil opportunity in your life and it won't go well. J.C. Riles, making light of evil ideas when first offered to our hearts, allowing Satan to talk to us and put bad notions into our hearts. It is precisely at this point that the road to ruin often begins. He that allows Satan to sow wicked thoughts will soon find within his heart a crop of wicked habits. Happy is he who really believes that there's a devil and believing watches and prays daily and doesn't nurture his or her sin. Fourth point as we go to the table. In this passage, we see the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has washed the feet of even the one that would betray him. He has washed the feet of even the one who would deny him three times. He has washed the feet of the 11 of whom he will say later on in a conversation in this room, John 16, 32, behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered and will leave me alone. The mercy of Christ. But that's why he came. He came to save deserters. He came to save compromisers. Isaiah 53 says he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He was despised. We esteemed him not. Who's we? We. Yet he bore our griefs, carried our sorrows, was pierced for our transgressions. Oh, the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, who came to save sinners like Peter and the 11 who would scatter and you and me. And that's why we partake of the table. So as we come to the table, the Lord's Supper, what a a providential time to partake of the table. As we see what happens at the table when Jesus transforms the last Passover meal into the first Lord's Supper. Let us not be like the one who does not respond in the obedience of faith. Let us be those who recognize that the only reason you're here today is the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. For those of you who are visiting with us, uh, if you are uh, a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are trusting in his finished work alone for your salvation, you're a baptized believer and member in good standing of a church that believes that gospel, we 
we encourage you and invite you to participate with us here at the table. But let's, let's bow our heads and pre- ask the Lord to prepare our hearts to receive it rightly. Uh, you, you can't do anything in this time to make you worthy. You're already worthy in Jesus. And yet we recognize that what these elements represent is that Jesus came not just to redeem us in our sin. He came to redeem us from our sin. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.